Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm super excited today because we have Mark Zablo as a guest. Now, Mark is the founder of Bleaker Trading, a trading card store and an exciting brand in the collectible space. He's based in New York City and has an interesting history in branding, influencers, media, entertainment, has a lot of deep ties in the trading card industry. So, Mark, so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you introduce yourself, Mark? I'd love to get the audience to know you better. Mark Zablo, founder of Bleaker Trading. Bleaker is a passion project of ours. We started it out of our influencer marketing agency, Cogent World. Cogent's been around since 2011. During the pandemic, with not really a lot to do when your main client is Corona, the beer, not the virus, and your marketing agency who's known for creating experiences, and you happen to have a passion in the collectible space. And so just a preparation met opportunity. And uh, now kind of I'm playing two roles. I run Cogent World, which is, as you mentioned, you know, very deep in influencer marketing, events, experiences, connecting brands, kind of merging the art and commerce. And then recently over the last year plus, building the Bleaker Trading brand. So if I got this right, so you're running a, a marketing agency that unfortunately had some challenges to, due to Corona and then decided to set up a trading card store, but it seems like there's more, more, it's more than just a typical store, right? That seems like you guys picked up on a opportunity in the market because as we know, trading cards have been huge over the last couple of years in terms of their growth. But what was the inspiration there? And like, what was the opportunity specifically you think might've been missing in the market? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it purely came from a place of need. We were in the pandemic, collectors, you know, were looking for community. Obviously, everyone during pandemic was looking for community, but collectors especially, we couldn't go to card shows, we couldn't travel. And when you looked at New York City, it was kind of funny because there wasn't really a place to buy baseball cards. And if you're a big trading card collector... No, wait, wait a minute, that, seriously? Like, I mean, do the math, go on Google. Fair. New York City does not have a big hobby shop presence. There's some places that are comic book stores that have, have great allocation for cards. There are some old school shops up and around different parts, but nothing that really stands out. And so for me, growing up in and around New York, LA, seeing all different types of culture, when I used to come to New York, one of the places I used to always run to was a music store called Fat Beats. And it was a record store, but it really was the clubhouse for music and especially in hip hop. And if you wanted to know what was going on, whether you bought a $3 record or a $20 t-shirt, it was just really about being there, hearing what was going on. So we kind of just were thinking like, there's nowhere to buy a top loader. There's nowhere to buy anything for your cards. And at the same time, there's nowhere to hang out. And so we really looked at the idea of, can we kind of create a pop-up shop? Can we create a little bit of a hangout something that really celebrates the card community, puts a flag in New York, and most importantly for us, gives us a place to go. And in that kind of conversation, New York City rent during the pandemic happened to be as depressed as possible. Great relationship with an awesome landlord who told us about a space that just happened to be super unique down in the West Village. West Village happens to be one of the most expensive zip codes in New York City with Nat Turner as one of its, one of its residents. Matt Turner being, you know, founder or CEO of uh, Collectors. And so it just kind of seemed like a unique opportunity to try it. We thought we would test a pop-up shop and our creative team at Cogent started putting the brand together and really kind of working on the ideas and, you know, ultimately spun out the idea of Bleaker Trading, you know, kind of down where we are in Bleaker and Christopher, you know, built the logo that we felt 
not only represented us very well, but really started to hit on the mission of if we're going to do this, you know, the industry doesn't need another card shop. New York, yes, needs a presence, but I'm not really here to run a card store. That's not what our expertise is. We know how to elevate brands and we know how to circle brands with the right type of people that give them authenticity. What we like to say is authenticity by association. We hear a lot about influencers. We hear a lot about celebrities. We look at it as brand building through the authenticity by association kind of practice. And so when it came time to really launch, what we said was, is we can do this, but the only way we're going to continue to do this is if everything we touch elevates the hobby. When you think about a hobby shop, you know, what's the survey, you know, says answer if this, if this was family feud, it's, it's the Simpsons. It's that curmudgeonly dude, don't touch anything, right? Um, nothing's for sale. You know, you're never open. And we wanted to be the complete opposite. So we set out with that mission, you know, brand bleaker trading create kind of this fat beat social club atmosphere, have everything that someone in the West Village would want to buy for multi-thousand dollars, but make sure you have the $2 top loaders that go with that $10,000 box as well, and slowly start bringing community to the hobby and elevate the hobby in everything that we do. So it sounds like Bleecker, again, is not just a typical card store. And in 2022, with the growth and like maybe modernity of trading cards versus like maybe stereotypical 80s, 90s way of thinking about it, you're creating a new type of community like clubhouse vibe. And I guess in the future, maybe this is it's too early to ask this, but do you see Bleecker as like a brand slash club community that will grow and expand beyond just New York as well? Because it sounds like, again, it's, I, I like the fact that it's not just a card store, but it's, it's something more than that. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the first thing people have said to us is, Where's Bleecker going to go next? What's the scale of it? I mean, first and foremost, it's just been a learning process. While we've been learning a lot about hobby shops and the business, the number one thing we've been doing is building that community. And I think, you know, some of the times when you hear about Bleecker and we get the comparison to the cheers is and that, you know, everyone knows your name when you walk in and you see local residents show up when an influencer like Ryan Card Collector or Card Ladder will come in or Ken Golden will come in and you'll see them show up to meet them. They'll drive a couple hours for it. And so we believe Bleecker has the ability to travel, you know, whether we're looking at the bigger cities, the Miamis and the LAs where we can create bigger experiences. But yet what we're getting right now is a lot of people saying, I have to come to New York City and go to Bleecker Trading. I have to come to New York City for a trade night. Hey, I hear that sports card nonsense is coming in June. I want to come down to meet them at Bleecker Trading. And as the hobby continues to grow and travel opens back up, and the hobby is known to travel, I think that's kind of what's fun about the hobby, we're becoming an international destination. And that to us is exciting because Bleecker in New York City, even though we have depressed New York City rent, it's still probably the highest in the country and only you know breeds very small space. It's a very unique space. And in an outdoor space in New York City is, you know, kind of that diamond in the rough. So I think as we look to other cities, we look to much larger experiences. But yes, the social club element, building the community. I think what's exciting for us right now is the recognition we're getting from the brands in the community, the Goldens, the Ebays, the Collectors Universes, the Fanatics. Uh, We have our partnership coming up with Jackass and Zero Cool next week. And that's allowing us to say... What could we do bigger now? 
now that we kind of have that because it's all about bringing value to the community. If those locals don't feel that we're providing a better, better experience or the person driving two and a half hours to go meet Cage at a trade night, if they're not walking out buying a $60 bleaker hat and feeling that that elevates them in elevates the hobby and makes them feel like they have their badge, you know, we're not really setting out on our mission and we're not really differentiating ourselves versus anyone in the hobby. But when we bring that value to the members, that's where a year later we're still here and we have a great brand name. And I think as we grow, we will look to see how we can really bring more community to that, to that member base. I like how you're thinking about this in a bigger picture vision than someone just setting up a car store. And it sounds like, you know, with your background in media, influencer marketing, experiential marketing, there's like probably your previous experience that helped influence that. Can you maybe like tell, tell us more about like what you were doing before Bleaker and maybe how that shaped the way you look at things? Absolutely. I mean, Cogent World is a marketing agency. It's day-to-day services business. Bleaker is a brand. So if anything, it's kind of weird because I'm used to being on the client service side, working for the brands, understanding what their their objectives are, and then um, trying to see if I can make their dreams come true. In this situation, I am the brand. So it's a little scary because everything I'm kind of selling day-to-day, I'm now seeing I'm putting to the test and putting kind of our own money behind. So you know, in, in the client service business, it's, it's a whole different life. You're working for other people. You're working with other people's money. You know, risk is a much different level that you're allowed to play with. We have a lot of people's jobs. There's 40 plus people at Cogent World, you know, all across the country. And when the pandemic hit, obviously, you know, th- those are scary moments. So thankfully, we have great clients. We work with brands that, um, you know, they really bring a human element into the partnership we have with them. And, you know, that allows us to create amazing experiences. And we get to do a lot of fun things. We get to put a lot of brands together with a lot of the people we like to watch in pop culture. And we get to see those experiences come to life. We get to help them go to the big music festivals and sporting venues and build out what their present look like. So it's kind of fun. It's a little bit behind the scenes of where the movie magic, let's call it, is is being put together from brand marketing and influencers, celebrities and sports teams and music artists. And so kind of combining that now with Bleaker has been a ton of fun because yeah, we don't know a lot about retail. Um, And you know, when you're, when you're dealing with retail problems and security problems and inventory things, and you look, take a step back and you're like, that's, that's one thing. But when you look at the business, I don't think anybody, I don't think the hobby needs another retail store. There's, you know, hundreds and hundreds. And I'd say from a retail standpoint, we're probably not in the top 5,000 of retail stores, but from a hobby shop and a brand, you know, we, we, we've escalated pretty fast to being one of the more recognized and celebrated brands in the hobby. So, you know, day to day, it's, it's kind of new for me being on the brand side, but you know, on a client service level, you know, that's where I think it really shows off at Bleaker. We understand hospitality, you know, and I think when you think about how you service a client at a high level on a marketing agency side, the way you would service someone walking in to buy top loaders or to hang out at an event, uh, it brings a different experience. And I would say when you look at Cogent and you look at the events we produce and the experiences we provide, that's what you feel when you walk into Bleaker. And when we talk to different brands and we talk to some of the the larger Mount Rushmore companies in this space, they don't talk to us like we're a card store because they're not talking to a card store. 
And that really allows us, I think, to cut through the clutter and execute across the board. That's why you see Hulu can do their launch party with the Wu-Tang cast. And then we're able to bring in Ski and make it a card element. It's how we get Call of Duty and Activision to say we're going to do the new release for the game, but do an art project at Bleecker because we want to target the collector community. So we look at those as wins. It's like we're bringing a lot of relevance and opportunity to this community and we're doing it in a risky way. So it's, it's, uh, it's new. I really like this crossover and this, what I'm, I'm kind of interpreting as like the painting the picture of what the future of trading cards is as something that might be like cooler, more immersive, more of like a combination of culture versus more limited cultures, which has again been like the stereotype of, let's say, baseball cards in the last few years, last decades. I really want to dive into how you think the whole industry will evolve and I think Bleaker might be the tip of the spear for what that future might look like. But before we do that, I actually just love to hear, I mean, what motivated you when you were, let's say, younger? Were you like a baseball card collector? Like, what are the kind of things that made you a collector today? Or like, what are the things you found most interesting when it comes to like trading cards? Are you a big fan of sports or whatever? No, total sports junkie growing up and massively influenced by, let's call it, Pepsi marketing culture. Like I grew up during like the Pepsi Coke challenge. I grew up during like, you know, it's Michael Jackson Super Bowl. It's those eras of brand marketing and celeb marketing really exploding. I was a young kid. I wasn't really big into cards necessarily when I was very young. You know, 1985 Tops football kind of was the first time I saw cards and saw art and got really excited, but I never was a big collector. But it wasn't really until 1991 when, you know, Wayne Gretzky bought the Honus Wagner for, you know, a little under a half million dollars. To me, that's when cards kind of became cool. It was a big story. It was Wayne Gretzky in the news. And at that time, Wayne Gretzky was the coolest athlete. You know, there was Michael Jordan, but I was a little young to be a early Michael Jordan sneaker collector. For me, 1992 was that pinnacle of Shaquille O'Neal's rookie year. And... That's when I moved from New Jersey to Los Angeles. Obviously, Gretzky was a god at that moment in 91, 92. And so him buying that Honus Wagner card was like, whoa. Like, even at that young age, it just was a pop culture moment. And I was obsessed with kind of that world. And I had every Shaq jersey from, you know, every dunk moment that they could ever create. I would collect the little Pepsi items that they had. That was when Gatorade was doing a lot of the NBA Finals uh, you know, you'd open the cap, and if you got the Bulls in six, you won the you won the prize kit. So it just was like basketball, advertising, and pop culture, NBA inside stuff. It was like all one. So I didn't grow up really loving Jordan. I grew up loving Shaq. I grew up loving Barkley. I grew up loving people that, I you know, Jordan broke all their hearts, let's call it. But to me, like the 1992 Shaq Reebok, that's the Jordan one in my equation. I don't wear them. They're too big for me. I wear, you know, more Jordans probably, but that was the coolest thing ever. So you kind of combine a couple things. Gretzky buying that card. Number two, Shaq coming on the scene. And when he came on the scene, it was right at that pivot. Like upper deck was 89.90. Cards were starting to get nicer. Ken Golden with the classic brand pulled Shaq into an exclusive deal. And these incredible sets of Shaq came out. And my mom would take me to the card stores. We had just moved to California, no friends. But she'd give me like 10, 20 bucks to go to the card store to make friends. And luckily bumped into kids and 
I remember I bought a pack of classic, pulled the Shaq and Alonzo Mourning uh, limited edition foil rookie. And that moment, that wow moment that like, you know, your butterflies in your stomach, the car store owners are like, oh my God, what did you get? The four kids on the other side of the room are going nuts. And you don't have friends at that moment. Yeah. And yeah. in that, like, then you slowly, like, you get that mini celebrity moment and it just started slowly turning into a community for me. And then we learned there were three card stores in the area. And so it always had something to do, always had people to meet and slowly just started to fall in love with it. And then someone who loved all the Nike ads, all the Charles Barkley ads, the CB34 shoes. Um, and I was fully influenced by that. I bought the catapult sneakers when they had first came out because they made you jump one sixteenth of an inch higher. I think it was Mitch Richmond was in the ad. But that was the kind of that was the world I loved. And card collecting put a lot of that together and it gave me friends. It gave me a community. And being in this small town in Southern California with this little group, it started to teach me a lot. And I think, you know, where I grew up, you either skated and did graffiti or you played sports and collected cards. And, you know, I think my parents loved to here's an extra 20 bucks. Just stay on that side of, of the street, you know, today. I think that last part's interesting because it seems like what I've heard is the cards kind of became a centerpiece of a community for you, a way to like make friends and also like combine passions and also meet people who have similar passions. And I see that in, in Bleecker, right? Like, again, you're not just like a retailer, but I just love this concept of a clubhouse. And I can see that it seems to be influenced by what trading cards meant to you when you were younger in terms of like the social aspect, the community aspect, beyond just the actual like items. I think for some people, who might be looking at things like, oh, I don't get why someone would collect cards, like, oh, what's just like a, a piece of cardboard. It's not just the cardboard, but it's like the people that you can meet around that piece of cardboard, if you will. You know, I've, you're so right. I find that at trade night sometimes I, I meet so many people and like, hey, what do you have in your case? And like, oh, like nothing really great. And or, hey, what, do, what deals did you do tonight? No, nah, I didn't really get any deals. And they don't care. They're there to just hang. They're there to have community. And what really keeps me going on the trade nights sometimes, because we don't make money on trade nights. We may sell boxes, things like that, but trust me, they're, they're a labor of love for the whole team. And I probably do the least amount of work. And what like really just kind of keeps me going with all of those people is like they keep coming back because if we don't do a trade night that month, just one trade night a month, on a random Wednesday up until maybe a couple months ago as the hobby's now starting to get really flourished. But for that first year, there'd be zero things happening for the entire week in the state of New York, not just New York city, the state that's of New York. So that's so crazy to me. I just don't, I just can't get that. That's so crazy. That's how limited the hobby was on events. Obviously now we have mid collective doing what they're doing and Dallas card shows jumping up and, Events are happening, culture collisions now, you know, two, three times a year, and eBay's coming very heavy. And I can't imagine what fanatics and everyone's going to be bringing into this. But, you know, when you look at it, yeah, if the card stores don't create something weekly, there's no community. And if you think about it from a gaming standpoint, you look at Dungeons and Dragons, you look at Magic, you look at Pokemon, they do a great job at that. They find their places, they have their game nights, they, they keep it competitive. I get it for a lot of card stores, including ours. It's expensive. Even if it's very little money, it's expensive. But it's kind of what we set out to do. So, you know, our, our goal and our job is to figure out how to do that in a way where it is sustainable. 
And right now in brand building mode, we're excited that it's built the community. And yeah, it really does kind of go from how I grew up, used to walk into the card stores. We knew the owners so well, they let us treat it like it was our living room. Now we want it to feel like that. Every now and then we'll get a parent from the neighborhood. They'll drop their kid off and come back in an hour or two. You know, that's cool. But we're a little older too. So sometimes we want to sit down and have a drink. Sometimes we want to sit in the backyard and watch the game. Sometimes John Starks is having a McCallion looking at uh, his personal collection from the biggest John Starks collector there is. And so, you know, that we just want to be a little bit more grown up now. And the thing with that, too, is that when one of the sort of like topics in, in the card industry these days is that a lot of the demographics are like people who collect the cards as kids, but now maybe in their like late 30s or something who are getting back into it. You know, it's like it's a mixture of young kids, but also I think one of the strongest demographics are these people who are like in their late 30s who are using it as a form of like nostalgia. And we've actually done some research into this, particularly with Pokemon cards. Like, of course, you could think about card collectors as young, but a big chunk, and I, you know, I wasn't around in like the 70s, so I don't know if this is like unique to today, but it feels like it's unique today that a lot of the people that are into these cards are doing it as a form of nostalgia, but they're going to keep doing it because now they have like, they have like uh, disposable income. Now they, they're still a fan of sports. Doesn't mean they're going to stop collecting cards because they've gotten older. So it's, I think like the hobby is getting older as well in good ways. It is. And that's where community is super important because what you did experience is a lot of people coming back in the hobby over the last couple of years. And like, I can't tell you, Tony, how many times a day I get the email. Hey, I just opened up uh, my collection from 30 years ago. I think it's worth millions of dollars and it's not worth, you know, millions of pieces of paper. And that's not good, right? Because people get excited that then there's also the element of people who came in over the last year or two with big money. And if you bought during 2020, your cards might not be where they are, you know, priced where they are today, and you're discouraged. And so to your point, if hobbyists aren't shopping with a little bit of a mentality of art or collectible or nostalgia that, hey, I'm not going to risk my savings, but if I buy something and it goes down in value, it means a lot to me still. It's a really cool item, and I want to display it in my house. Or I want to talk to other collectors like that and build a community. So to us, the community is everything. Because if you open up a box of cards by yourself and you make money, you're happy. You open up a box of cards by yourself and you lose money, you gamble, then it wasn't fun. But if you're hanging out with people talking about cards and you open up a box or you just do a trade or you buy something that goes down 30% later, and you risked $100, not $10,000, or maybe to some people, $10,000 in their bucket is 100 right? But you risk something low, you're paying for the experience, you're paying for the community, you're paying for the conversation. And you still walked away with something versus just going to the casino, lighting it on fire, things like that. And I think, I don't really want to talk about NFTs because it's not my bucket, but I think when you see why a lot of people are buying into NFTs besides the flip, and the utility. They want to be a part of something. They want the badge value. They don't physically have something to go home with, but they have something to put on their Instagram or their Facebook or their Twitter. That has real value. So I think the community aspect for all of this is everything because otherwise it's just an index, right? Of you know how much you're up or down. And you know, I as as tempted as I am to keep pushing on the NFT stuff, I'll hold off on the NFT questions right now. But one parallel I would like to make that seems to kind of wrap this all together, maybe moving on to the next question, is like, I think sometimes NFTs 
are like modern versions of streetwear, right? Like successful streetwear brands throughout history, maybe like Supreme isn't as cool now, but like when Supreme was just getting started and, and whatever the hottest latest streetwear brand is, people bought into it because it was like their price of admission to a community. You know what I mean? And I feel like now that definition, well, that, that desire is just human and will never go away. And people are looking for it in different avenues. So maybe like now I might buy into buying a Charizard card or an NFT or a, like a sneaker, a pair of Yeezys, because that's buying the admission to like a community and a sense of identity. And that's why, you know, at New Street, we kind of think of all these things like collectively because collectibles are essentially ways to like join communities that maybe you didn't realize that you're part of until you actually like were, could come together around a baseball card or whatever. Now, I know one of the things that we've talked about in the past is this idea that there's so much growth in trading cards specifically. And, you know, we've mentioned several companies that have all raised billions of dollars to make it even bigger and all these big movements happening, which we could talk about as well. But one of the, I think, seminal thought leadership pieces on this was when Josh Luber, who's, you know, former CEO of StockX, now leading up Fanatics Trading Cards, he wrote this essay called Trading Cards Are Cool Again, which, you know, you and I have talked about, but essentially outlining like a thesis for how trading cards can grow massively from its already like big chunk of uh, revenue and cultural significance. And how part of that also comes from the fact that he sees parallels between the growth of sneakers and the growth of trading cards. And there were several factors involved in there. Maybe we could start off with one factor being influencers. You know, I think at one point in the essay, Josh says people like Virgil Abloh, Travis Scott, Kanye West did so much to not just promote their specific sneakers, but making sneakers more mainstream in general and making more it more attractive. And then he started thinking, how does that go to the trading card industry? Who are these influencers? Are they still yet to be discovered? Is it people who are currently influencers like Ken Golden or whatever, or Steve Aoki? Now, you obviously have a lot of experience, at least thoughts on influencers and how that works in the space. I feel like we could go down a lot of different rabbit holes here, but what are your initial thoughts on, I guess, how influencers will impact trading cards moving forward? It's a scary, you know, bubble to burst with me. You know, when I was walking around the national in 2019 as a hobbyist, uh, literally buying and collecting, there were two sides of the national. There was the old boots of the old guys in the front that kind of owned the domain. But in the back, you saw the newcomers with these new technologies and these content companies and the lightning rods kind of started dinging in my head that this is a hobby that has no influencers, right? Like Josh talked about all the different cultural moments that are hap happening now, but really up until Gretzky bought that card, that was the first moment. And up until 2019, when Josh and Gary and, and Koontz got on the stage to introduce hey, there's a lot happening in cards, nothing influential really happened that, you know, drove it over the mainstream. We have the Ken Griffey card. We have, you know, other I, things that have happened, but nothing that was going to push it to the mainstream. So walking around that show and hearing what they were saying, immediately I said, if influencers get into this hobby, all of these cards go up. And, you know, my thesis was if Rick Ross buys a Jordan rookie and says it's as cool and valuable as his Rolex, I have no Rolex to show, that Jordan rookie will be 
worth a lot of money. And so that's where Bleeker kind of started because we were looking at how do we invest in companies in the space? Do we invest in content companies? Do we invest in supply companies? Do we invest in new trading card companies? But what we knew was that watching Gary and Josh walk around the national and seeing all the dealers running up to them, these are like grown men, older guys, dealers, like, you know, crunchy old dealers running up to Gary V. And I'll talk to them and be like, why are you like, you're probably making fun of him because you're that guy. But now you're like, you know, fanboying over him. What's up? And he's like, look, no one in this entire building can help bring my brand beyond the hobby. That guy can. So I'll fanboy, even though I'll make fun of him because, you know, that's people love to do that. They love to take a picture, beg guy, and then hate, right? So they, I saw that so deep and I was like, it's coming. It's going to come. Whether we bring it or not, it's going to come. And what we looked at it was if we could bring it from a credible way, right? If we could bring it from a credible way, we can do something that elevates the hobby and, you know, quite frankly, makes money. I'd love to get your thoughts on a couple of things. Well, one, sort of case studies of influencers getting into cards. And then I'm going to ask you, like, if you're to wave a magic wand and, like, have unlimited budget and access, how would you make Bleaker get the right influencers involved? But maybe the first question we saw recently, Drake was talking about how he's searching for, uh, I forget what the card was, but it was, um, Drake was, like, like going live on man. Yeah, look, yeah, like, going live on Instagram talking about that, which you could argue is, you know, he's, he's one of the biggest artists in the world. So how will that impact things? And then the second example is Logan Paul being such a big Pokemon card fan that it's, I'd say it's pretty, in my opinion, inarguable that he's grown Pokemon card, at least interest in Pokemon cards over the last two years. So what's your take on those two examples and the impact of them? Yeah, so taking that backwards... You know, I put influencer, incredible influencer in two different buckets. Logan Paul is as big of an influencer as it can get. And I'm sure, and I'm not a Pokemon collector, so forgive me. I don't want to speak on anything Pokemon community and do anything. But I'm curious if the hardcore Pokemon collector and the people that are entering into the hobby as young Pokemon kids if Logan Paul is that level of credibility that is the tipping point for the hobby, or is it the beginning point? And what I mean is, is that in my perfect world, I wouldn't choose Logan Paul to represent a product that financially has a lot of volatility. I think Logan Paul owning Pokemon and being someone that owns a lot of things at that level is great for the hobby. Yet what I'm hoping is, is that it leads to unlocking bigger people that bring even more credibility to the hobby. For example, we know Bieber is a big Pokemon collector. We would love Bieber to engage with the hobby. Yeah. yeah. He has no reason to, right? But play around with me for a little bit because this is kind of what I do. I sit around I go on Clubhouse with my conspiracy uh, hobbyist theorist, and I kick around crazy ideas. But just hear me out. You have Logan Paul. You have Bieber. Bieber has no reason to get involved. But maybe just enough poking and prodding and seeing. Yeah, Bieber. Bieber comes out and flexes. 
that flex moment at a Bieber level could unlock an even greater level. And when we look around and you bring up Drake, I started off by saying if Rick Ross could really own a Michael Jordan rookie, that will help my collection. Drake pulled six of them the other night. So, like, manifest destiny. I can leave the hobby. Ken Golden did it for us, plus Cardport and everyone else. Like, we're good. But when you think about where else that goes, well, Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the biggest comic book collectors out there. Right? And so when you think about it, you think about poker and you think about the Tobey Maguire, you know, poker rooms and things like that, you know, can the hobby get to a place where you are unlocking everybody's collector, like collector passion? Can you unlock that emotional affinity for being a collector? And you look at brands like Magpie that's building the digital tools to, to really manage not just your cards, but your comics, your watches, your handbags, even sneakers. And so I think the more those tools can, can unlock, the Logan Pauls will potentially get us there. And that's where Logan Paul is massively important to the hobby. We need to make sure that if we get a Drake in, okay, well, then what does Drake unlock for us? Does Drake then unlock, I don't know, all the money from Saudi royalty because he's big over there and they now, you know what I mean? The, the gambling aspect of trying to pull that LeBron logo, man. I mean, that's what we need when we have those moments. I think one of the things I'm getting from this too is that just getting an influencer to quote unquote like endorse a product is different than taking more of a strategic view about why he or she is relevant to this and what's the desired outcome. Because one of the things that I'm thinking about with sneakers that I don't know if this applies to cards is when you think about what Josh Luber called like, I think like the holy trinity of influencers like Kanye West, Travis Scott, Virgil Abloh, they were actually all designing sneakers too. So it's not just that Travis Scott was saying, oh, I love Jordans. He was actually like putting out like Cactus Jack, Travis Scott, Jordans. Like Kanye wasn't just saying, I love Nike. He actually put out his own shoes. So if I love Kanye as a sneaker influencer, I would be actually buying that. Now, if Drake is saying, I love Michael Jordan cards or basketball cards, I think it's slightly different, right? Because you're not really buying like a Drake card, which also gets to the point where, I mean, you think about Zero Cool, who in case people aren't aware, it's like a new trading card company that is making trading cards around like entertainment cultural figures. I'm thinking to myself out loud based on this like line of conversation, if I love like maybe... If Drake talking about how you should buy Drake cards, maybe that is a bigger thing than Drake saying buy basketball cards. Because that to me is like more of a, I'm trying to buy my way into like like the Drake community rather than Drake directing me to buy a product. Right. And I think that's what Zero Cool is, is in a cool way bringing to the hobby. I grew up like Yo MTV Raps cards from the Ice Cream Man. Like they had no value to resell and they still don't funny enough, but they were so cool. Like they brought me closer to people in a way and trading cards have a challenge these days because you don't need to look on the back of a trading card to see the stats. You go on ESPN or your phone and you could see everything a trading card could bring you. So trading cards went from having to tell a story to now having to be, have a collectible moment to them. And, you know, I think what's exciting is what Drake's doing and what Josh is doing with Josh Zero Cool, there's there's obviously tons of people besides Josh powering that company. But what their vision and mission is achieving for all of us is it's giving Drake the platform to go put a couple Jordan rookies and logo mans in his collection, 
Why? Because the kid who owns a Jordan rookie talking to his four friends that don't think cards are cool. And he's like, you can't get what Drake's wearing on his head. You can't get his shirt, but I got the rookie. He's showing off next to his watch. Maybe it's a lower grade, but I have it. So he's bringing that in. Now, Drake has not put anything on his channels yet. So when we talk about Drake's influence in the hobby, we're celebrating. But outside the hobby, besides the TMZ, it hasn't gone there really in, in that bucket. So I want to be, you know, I want to be careful to see what his real influence is going to be. The second part of it is with Zero Cool, you know, you think about it like, what access do we have to what they've done so far? I mean, Gary Vee's been one thing and the Jackass thing is just pretty new, but even if you look at the Jackass set that they're doing, there's a Tony Hawk autograph. There's a Tyler Creator rookie. There's an MGK autograph. Obviously, Knoxville. Obviously, steve Obviously, the rest of them. There's Spike Jones in there. So they're bringing kind of these cultural relics in. And if you think about what Topps did back in 2005, they did this with Jay-Z and, and um, NBA. They created this product, and Iverson was within it. And all these Jay-Z cards came out, and nobody paid attention. And just about a year or two ago, and, you know, shout out to um, 2005 Jay-Z. I'll probably get his name wrong, but one of the bigger collectors on Instagram. He's been collecting these cards one by one. And now you see the Jay-Z autographs going for five, six figures. So I think it's cool. I think that they're going to capture these moments in time that five, ten years later, be like, oh, my God, how did we not buy the weekend cards? Or how did we not buy those? And boom, you know all these autographs and these things were in there. And when you talk about people like Virgil, like he just did it with clot and they just released a, a card in that Nike clot that totally got slept on. But could you imagine if there was a Virgil card, if there was a Yeezy card, one of the best Jordan rookies is a Nike card, right? It's that, you know, that, that Nike card of him dunking. So, you know, it's arguable that, and it's arguable that what they're doing right now, while, super new to people is is tried and true and might be slept on for a minute and i think also give them time because licensing is hard and when you start to get people to understand what they're doing and the licensing gets a little easier i think they're going to have an incredible product with licenses that are going to excite us and so i think a lot more influence is going to come in whether they think they can make money in their own products or they realize that, hey, I have such cool factor putting a Jordan rookie next to a Rolex. This is fascinating, like the idea of entertainment trading cards and, and how big that might be. Let's, it's still kind of new, but it's like an exciting frontier of what's happening in, in like the card industry. But I'd also love to hear like maybe your thoughts on more traditional card categories, right? So you got all the classic, you know, like baseball cards, basketball, football, et cetera. You got, you know, like more the games like Magic Gathering, Pokemon, etc. And you also have, I think, some like emerging categories like soccer cards are getting bigger in America. Formula One, you know, as the rise of UFC, you know, as the rise of like different sports and stuff, there's a natural sort of inclination that as fan interest increases in something like Formula One, therefore people will be buying Formula One cards. Now, apart from the entertainment ones, like out of these different sports, and if you want to touch on the Pokemon Magic stuff too, if, if you'd like to, like where do you see maybe the most interesting opportunities or where is their growth based on like how things are changing right now? You know, it's funny. A year or two ago, you would have said soccer and F1. And the, the answer for me would have been, if you look at the TV schedules, 
it makes sense. You have F1 going weekly. You have soccer World Cup going to be in the winter. I would look at it in kind of just a very simple way. If you look at what Fanatics is consolidating with all the licenses pretty much coming over, I think, you know, Topps does a really good job with baseball product, with Topps, with Bowman, all that. And they're here for the season and they got multiple products for every prospect, right? Like Jason Dominguez's cards are through the roof and, you know, we've had his cards for years. So I'd say the biggest opportunity is if Fanatics or when Fanatics, because they have the NBA license, when they, when they finally take those rights on, whether that's through some acquisition of Panini or through just the rights expiring. I think if you look at basketball and football and how delayed those products are and the fact that like football prism, which is like the premier product for us, won't be out by the time this year's draft is. So like a Mac Jones, like the Mac Jones card won't be out by the time the draft is. The same thing with NBA, how it's so delayed. I think the biggest opportunity in category is going to be those two sports when Fanatics takes over, whether they buy Panini you know, in, the, in, the, in, the, in a timely fashion or when the licenses expire. But otherwise, most categories, and you saw this, right? Marvel had a recent jump, the PMGs, all that, and then crash. WWE Flash came out. We went nuts for WWE, but we're starting to feel a little bit of shakiness. So I really think it's about basketball and football getting corrected. Like I said, they do a great job with tops at baseball. And then upper deck on the hockey side is, you know, kind of a little less relevant. Upper deck won't sell to us. They don't consider us a hobby shop. So that's why we, uh, we <laughs> say, we'll, we'll make a shirt that inspires them because we don't talk about elevating the hobby. I can't remember the last time I saw someone in an upper deck hat. And we know that because when we went on eBay to buy one, we couldn't find one made after 1994. So, you know, you talk about elevating the hobby and things like that. Upper Deck should be – like, Upper Deck should be eating Zero Cool's lunch right now. Like, why wouldn't Upper Deck have the dopest Jay-Z license next to Michael Jordan, next to LeBron James, right? Um, so, you know, let, let's see. Let's see. Well, I've loved everything we've talked about so far, and we're kind of slightly running out of time here. But before we start closing, I'd love to just hear, like, I mean – out of everything that maybe we haven't covered, what are some of the things that are most exciting you right now, things you might find interesting that we haven't talked about yet in terms of like the overall hobby? You know, sticking with community, I think what I'm more excited to see or most excited to see over the next year is, like I talked about, our trade nights a year ago were the only thing to do in the hobby. Now there's a lot to do in the hobby. When you talk about the Mount Rushmore right now, Golden, Collectors, you know, you talk about fanatics and you talk about eBay and I do separate golden and collectors because they're both that big. You look at those Mount Rushmore's, the experiences that I think are coming our way are going to be awesome. And I think when you talk about smaller events like culture collision in Atlanta, that eBay is really getting behind and making a bigger event to the big stuff happening, the mint collectives that IMG is behind and what's going to probably happen at this year's national I think for collectors, traveling experiences is going to be massive. And I really look forward to, let's call it the next couple of years, where you're really going to be able to pull out a map and say, no matter what city I go to, there is a collector experience I want to go feel, whether that's the all-star cafe of today, whether that's you know going to see your favorite hobbyist shop in Indiana, 
But ultimately, I think experiences are going to go through the roof. And I think the, the Mount Rushmore of our industry is going to get us there. That's wonderful. I look forward to that future. And I think that'd be just fun as well. And especially after being uh, in, in COVID and kind of locked down for so long, I think there's like an itch and a hunger to do more of these things like in person. And that's going to affect all industries. Now, Mark, I end the podcast with the same two questions. The first one being, you know, first off, where people find you, website, et cetera, social media. And second, what's one last message you'd like to leave the audience? Find me. Instagram at Mark Zablo, LinkedIn at Mark Zablo, always DM Bleaker Trading as well. You know, pretty easy. One message I'd like to leave the audience with is kind of a message we start with at Cogent. On your first day at Cogent, we ask you a question, which is uh, tell us about your 13-year-old self. And we make you kind of share a couple elements of pop culture that were very important to you growing up and what kind of influenced you. For me, that was 1993. And so you think about what we talked about earlier. I shared a lot of those moments, the Charles Barkley moments, the, you know, the OJ Simpson moments, things like that. Actually, that was probably a little later. But in general, what we believe is that when you're 13 years old, and it funny relates to the hobby, it's kind of where like the innocence gets pulled out of you. Like you're no mm. longer like you're thinking about college, you're thinking about career, you're thinking about your grades and what we say is like, that's where, and be careful who's listening, but like, that's how you end up becoming an accountant. You know, like you just lose all the pure fun of wanting to be an NBA player or like, you know, want to be a fireman. And like, it's kind of how you, you know, so what we say at Cogent a lot is we want to remind ourselves on day one is who's your 13 year old self. And if your 13 year old self was looking at you today, would they think what you're doing is, is quote unquote cool? But they think what you're doing is what they wanted to do before life turned a little bit to get more real. And so we always tell everyone, make your 13-year-old self proud. You know, do what your 13-year-old self would love. And at some point, if you were ever working in a place where you don't feel like your 13-year-old self would be proud if you're working for us, you probably need to go because we don't work in finance and accounting and banking where money in those early years is, is crazy. But we work with live ammo. And, you know, that's something that, that we like to say. So when you talk about trading cards, I always kind of have to be careful, but I make this joke a lot that a lot of guys I know, I'm just speaking of people I know, when you talk to them, they say they collected when they were a little kid, they stopped when they got to junior high school and high school. And the answer why is, uh, well, it wasn't cool or I met girls and that was it. I was no longer interested in cards. And so if you're going to come work at Bleecker, especially you're going to come work back in the hobby make your 13 year old self proud. And you know, that's something that I kind of try to stress to everyone. If otherwise, like you're not having fun, like go work in real estate and make real money quick. That's honestly a beautiful message. Make your 13 year old self proud. I love that. Well, Mark, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time for the podcast. It's been wonderful. And I look forward to hopefully many more conversations in the future. Tony, I'm flattered. Thank you for having me. It's incredible to follow all the incredible guests you've had. So thank you. Thanks for listening to New Street X. You can learn more about Mark and Bleaker Trading in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.